turn now to the book of Daniel and continue to learn what the Lord would teach us through this Old Testament book and through this Old Testament prophet. I encourage you to turn to Daniel chapter 2, where we left off last week, somewhere in the middle there. And just reflect back on the lessons we've learned so far in these just couple short weeks in Daniel. We learned about um, God's sovereignty, how he exercises um, divine sovereignty over all circumstances, even over the terrible times. God is still sovereign. He's not lost control. He hasn't stepped away from his throne. No matter how exasperating our personal circumstances might be, one thing we learned from the book of Daniel is God is in control. We also learned in that first week that God blesses those who are devoted to him. God blesses those who are devoted to him. Daniel was a man that was devoted to him, and it says that the Lord gave him favor and blessed him. We know that uh, not only was Daniel a man that was resolved in his devotion towards God, but we also learned last week that Daniel expressed that devotion, and also that devotion was cemented by his prayer life. Last week we looked at four words that describe that devoted prayer life of Daniel. The words were dependent, consistent, repentant, and persistent. And our prayer is that that would also reflect and describe our prayer lives. Dependent, consistent, repentant, and persistent. And this week as we continue, we're going to look at someone else and learn what the Lord has to teach us from their life. But I'm reminded of uh, about a little over seven years ago, I was an intern in Davenport, Iowa. And John Cochran was, was the coach there that would... Um, Training the church planters, and he taught, he coached me and Jordan and Brian Jorgensen that year. But I remember early one morning over coffee, just me and him and Starbucks, and he assured me, he said, "Ryan, you'll never be useless." He said, "If nothing else, uh, you will serve as a bad example to other church planters." And there was probably some truth to that. But this week we're going to look at Nebuchadnezzar today for Nebuchadnezzar. It's his turn for us to learn from his bad examples. We can learn a lot from failures of other people, especially as they are recorded in Scripture. In fact, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. He wants us to be aware of, and then he starts describing the faithlessness, the failures of God's people. And he says... Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. And he continues to describe their lack of faith and their rebellion. And then again he says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the culmination of the end of the ages has come. So we look back at even the failures in the Old Testament, we realize they were recorded for a purpose. They were recorded so we can learn from it. Who would you rather be? Would you rather be the first child or the last child? Well, it probably depends on if you're a first child or not. But I know I look at my kids and I think I was a much better parent to the younger one than I was to poor Lainey. Somehow, by God's grace, she's one of the best ones over there. But you know what? I was not nearly as good of a parent at the first as I was in the last. And what... First Corinthians 10 is saying, we're here in the last. We're, we're the last of times. 
All that all of human history has been brought to the culmination of where we're at now. And we can learn from the examples of those who came before us. So we're going to learn from the life of Nebuchadnezzar this morning. And the lessons we can learn from Nebuchadnezzar's life, uh, we'll lump into three categories. And the first category is the contrast in the characters. Daniel being one character, and Nebuchadnezzar being another character. And the first lesson is the contrast between those two characters. In many ways, Nebuchadnezzar um, serves as a he's, a, he's a foil to Daniel. And we see Daniel's righteousness and Daniel's integrity. And we see not so much with Nebuchadnezzar, at least at the beginning. So let's contrast these two men, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. And let's work our way from the outer man to the inner man. Let's start with what is apparent. Let's start with the external observations. When we look at this man, Nebuchadnezzar, just remembering what we've read over the last couple of weeks, and we're all familiar with these stories. Nebuchadnezzar, from the outside, it can be observed that he was a man of power. A man of recognition. A man of accomplishment. Nebuchadnezzar reigned for over 40 years in one of the most famous and powerful kingdoms in history. He was one of the most important kings in that second Babylonian empire. History records him as Nebuchadnezzar the Great. You're not allowed to give yourself a nickname, of course. But when history refers to you as the Great, you must have done something. Right, And Nebuchadnezzar has a lot that he could really brag about. He greatly expanded the Babylonian Empire. He was the first Babylonian king to rule Egypt. He, in fact, created in his home one of the seven wonders of the world. He was a man of power, of recognition, and of accomplishment. And we can contrast this with Daniel. With outward appearances, Daniel looked quite different. Daniel was a man who was displaced. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar himself stripped Daniel from his homeland. He was displaced, and therefore he was an outsider for the rest of his life. He was a man who had been conquered and subjugated. So two quite contrasting figures, just on first observation. When I look at Daniel's place, it reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 8. Paul describes the believer as afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Not exactly an enviable place. It's a, he's all but destroyed, he's just barely hanging on. He's the boxer that's on the ropes. That means he's got no energy left, he has no strength left, he's not quite knocked out. The ropes, the boundaries of the arena are the only thing keeping him on his feet. That would describe Daniel to some degree, but we must not forget the verse that precedes that passage in 1 Corinthians, where Paul explains why believers are put in that position. Believers are in that position, the same position that Daniel apparently was in, because we have a treasure in jars of clay. Our lives, our bodies being jars of clay. We have a treasure within to show the surpassing power that belongs to God and not to us. So Daniel was in this position, quite different from Nebuchadnezzar, because God wanted to distinguish the difference between the inner man. So let's take a look real quickly at Daniel's inner man. Let's peek inside that jar of clay and see what treasure lies within. When we look at Daniel's inner man, we see a man 
that has a quiet, confident peace. We saw that last week, didn't we? They come in ready to execute him, and he calmly asked for some clarity, for some time, and a meeting with the king. He was a man that was possessed with a quiet and confident peace. I think of Isaiah 26, 3. God will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on him. Perhaps that was the three-time daily prayers that Daniel participated in. That's perhaps what was required for him in his circumstances to keep his mind stayed on God. Daniel was a man of faith. We read about him in, in, in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11 where it describes the prophets who had the ability to stop the mouths of lions. And we'll see that later on in this sermon series. He was a man that had not only a quiet and confident peace, not only a uh, a faith, he had a personal connection point with the all-powerful God of the universe. Though he personally may not have had any power compared to Nebuchadnezzar, he had a personal connection with the all-powerful God of the universe. And on top of all that, he had a helpful spirit. As we see throughout the book of Daniel, he rarely works on his own behalf. He's laboring for others. He's a helpful man. You know, throughout Scripture we see descriptions of a, a righteous man or a woman. And the picture is a tree that's well watered, in full bloom, bearing fruit. And the idea is that this tree is helpful for those around it. They come to the tree for shade. They come to the tree for, uh, for shelter from the storm. They come to the tree for fruit, to eat, for nourishment, for sweetness, for enjoyment. Daniel was that kind of a man, always helping other people. Now, Daniel's inner character also stands in stark contrast to Nebuchadnezzar's inner character. Remember, on the outside, Nebuchadnezzar was a man of power, recognition, and accomplishment. But internally, we realize that Nebuchadnezzar was helpless, suspicious, and troubled. He was helpless. He had this dream. He knew that someone greater than him had given him the dream. Dream. He was. It was impossible for him to discern the dream. He cast himself upon his uh, upon his servants to figure out what is the meaning of this dream. But it's clear he was helpless. He couldn't do it on his own. He was helpless and he was suspicious. Remember, he didn't trust any of his advisors. He threatened to pull a limb from limb unless they could tell him not only the meaning of the dream but the dream itself. He was suspicious that his most closest advisors did not have his best interests in mind. He was helpless, he was suspicious, and he was troubled. In chapter 2 and verse 1, it says in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled. His sleep left him. So now we see a totally different picture from the internal Nebuchadnezzar and the external Nebuchadnezzar. A stark contrast, not only between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, but also between the internal man and the external man. And remember the words of God where he says, Man does not see as God sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. What does God see when he looks at your heart? I'm not asking you what your neighbor sees when they look over the fence. I'm not asking what family members see as they see your family unit in action. I'm asking what does God see when he looks at your heart? What does he see? Does he see the turmoil of Nebuchadnezzar's life? Does he see what well, really Nebuchadnezzar can be described as this? And maybe this is what God sees in your heart. Maybe not. 
Ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar was a man who relied on human solutions. He schemed his way to produce results from others. He was always looking to his subordinates for resolution. And he was a man afflicted by his circumstance. A man afflicted by his circumstance. When God looks into your heart, does he see any of those characteristics? Someone that is always scheming to produce results with a human solution? That's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did. He was a man that was always looking to his subordinates for resolution. He went to his servants and his servants' servants. We were tempted to do that. Managers, are you looking for those that work under you to make your life easier? Mothers, looking if only your kids would behave this way or your husband would behave this way. We're always looking for others to make our lives better. Daniel wasn't like that. Daniel had a helpful spirit. He was looking how he could bring resolution to others, not seeking it from others. Ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar was a man who was afflicted by his circumstances. You feel afflicted by your circumstances? Daniel was completely different. Daniel, rather than relying on human solutions, was completely dependent on divine intervention. He rose above his circumstances. So, just for starters, and just using our recollection of these stories, we see an incredible contrast, a lesson in contrast of character. But there's a second category that I want to learn from as we dive deep into the text here. Another lesson we can learn from Nebuchadnezzar's life falls under the category of the chink in his armor. Outwardly, he appeared very much in control. He had all the power and prestige, but inwardly and secretly, there was a chink in his armor. And the identification, uh, in order to identify this chink in his armor, let's set up the story from Daniel chapter 2. Remember, he had the dream. He didn't want to share what it was, but he wanted his wise men to tell him the meaning of the dream and what the dream was. And Daniel does just that in Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. Real quickly, we'll go through this dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you. And its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold. Its chest, arms of silver. Its chest and arms of silver. Its middle and thighs. Its middle and thighs were of bronze. Its legs of iron. Its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces. And became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. That'd be like, like the dandelion seed blowing in the wind. They just they scattered until there was no more. So that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So a natural stone came and destroyed this man-made image, and then the and then the stone just grew and grew, became a mountain and filled the entire earth. And in verse 36, Daniel interprets the dream. This was the dream. Now we tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings. He was the king of other kings, not the king of all kings, but he was the king of other kings. Uh, Babylon was an empire that subjugated other empires. And so he had kings underneath him. Daniel addresses him as such. He says, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of 
of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. Verse 39. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you. So that would be the next layer down. That would be the chest and the arms of an inferior quality of metal. This was, through history we know, this was referring to the Medes and the Persians. They had an alliance. Though they were both weaker than the Babylonian Empire because of their alliance, they were able to overthrow the most powerful state in, ancient, in the ancient world. Perhaps that's why it had two arms in the image. But we know this was prophesied 175 years earlier. 175 years earlier, this exact thing was prophesied, the, the conquering of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians, in Isaiah chapter 13, verses 17 through 19. Listen to this. Isaiah said, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them. At this time, they weren't a very powerful kingdom at all. But God prophesied, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against, against them, who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. That was 175 years earlier. God predicted this. And we're going to see that it happens exactly as God says as we continue through the book of Daniel. But again... In verse 39, it says, Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule the whole earth. That third kingdom of bronze, historically we would recognize it to be the Greeks. And then it says, There shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall crush and break all these. That would be the Roman Empire, brutal and strong. Verse 41. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall, be, that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hand and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. So we predicted all of all these kingdoms, the end of all times. We're not sure exactly what that fifth kingdom is. There's different theories on that. It may be a revived Roman Empire that is yet to come. We know in Revelation there's a kingdom that is an alliance of ten nations. Might be those ten toes. We're not sure. We'll look into that further as we go. But here's what we do know. And here's what I think we should take away from this. We know the beginning of this prophecy was fulfilled historically, literally. 
just as it was described. We see it confirmed in other places in Scripture. And so as the beginning of the prophecy was fulfilled, so the end of the prophecy will be fulfilled. And we will see that kingdom of God come. It will be a kingdom that is clearly not made from humans. It's a kingdom that comes from God. It will destroy all other kingdoms, and it will cover the entire earth. We wait for this day. This is the blessed hope that we wait for. This is what Daniel prophesied. Note, note what it says at the end of verse 45. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. And here we are, 2,500 years later, the dream is still as certain. The interpretation is just as sure, and we should be certain, and we should be sure as well as we wait for that stone not cut by human hand to come and supplant all the kingdoms of the earth. We wait for that. Now, what was Nebuchadnezzar's takeaway? We see in verses 46 through 49 that he pays homage to Daniel, and he has respectful and honors words for the Lord. He seems to worship God to some degree, but then... We see in chapter 3 and verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, and he expects the whole kingdom to worship it. So somehow, Nebuchadnezzar missed the point of this dream. And here's the chink in his armor. Nebuchadnezzar was a man of pride. He was a proud man. And this led eventually to his downfall. He had this entire elaborate dream. Give it to him by God. Especially of all the people on the earth, he's the one that received the dream. And then Daniel came to him miraculously and shared all of this information. The totality of the dream was all the kingdoms of the earth are going to be destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar, you're not even, you're not even like in the in the climax of this story. You're just the first character to be killed. You got four more kingdoms that come after you. That's even before God comes and destroys all of them. And what was Nebuchadnezzar's takeaway? I'm the head of gold. Wow, I like that. You know, this is like if you give a performance review at work and you bring someone into your office and you tell them, listen, you're a really great guy, but you've got some terrible work habits. Uh, you're, not, you're not really trained to do this job and you cost money, the company a lot of money, so we're going to have to let you go. Nebuchadnezzar would reply, wow, you think I'm a great guy, huh? That's what, that was his takeaway from all of this. So much so that he decides to erect a golden statue. It says in verse 1 that its height was 60 cubits and its breadth was 6 cubits. So that's 90 feet tall. You know that in, down in, uh, in uh, I think it's in Brazil, that statue of Jesus with his arms out like that. You guys remember seeing that? That statue is 90 feet tall. So this is about that. Now it would have been, this statue would have been much more narrow than that. But it says that he put it on the plain of Durin, the province of Babylon, and the king. Verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 3, then the satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the king, the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples and nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the uh, trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
We see Nebuchadnezzar's pride on display here. We don't know exactly what the image was. Perhaps the image was of Nebuchadnezzar himself. He was the golden head after all. It seemed to be his decoy. Maybe he erected an image in his likeness and commanded all men to worship it. If that's the case, the significance of the image would be self-worship. Proud people are worshipers of self. And we are all susceptible to this. Perhaps the image uh, resurrected was the dream, the statue that was in the dream. Maybe it was an exact replica of the statue, only was covered in gold. In which case, still, there's pride in it. Because Nebuchadnezzar would have been worshipping his own accomplishments. And we, we are tempted to do that, especially us men, I think. I assume women have the same struggles as us men. Tempted to worship our own accomplishments. Tempted to put our own goals on a pedestal and fall down and worship those goals. To want those goals so badly that we sacrifice everything to accomplish them. Perhaps this was just an obelisk, like, uh, like the Washington Monument. Just, just a, a, a golden pillar. In which case it would still be representative of worship of our own ideas and our own accomplishments. No matter what it is, we see Nebuchadnezzar's pride on display here. I think it was Charles Manton that said something like, Pride, pride is what introduced death to humanity and made devils out of angels. C.S. Lewis said, Pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love and contentment or even common sense. Pride makes us competitive with those that we should be on the same team with. Pride makes us competitive to the point that we are willing to win even if it's at the expense of our own hurt. I want to win no matter what. We went, Rachel and I went camping with the kids a few weeks ago and my little nieces are now grown enough that they have husbands of their own. And we were playing Ultimate Frisbee, and I'm the old, going bald uncle, and they let me know that. But when we play Ultimate Frisbee with the son-in-laws, you know what? I'm competitive, and I dive, and I, and I tumble, and I, at the end of it, I felt like I was beat up with a baseball bat all over my body. And I paid the price, and then the next morning they said, hey, Uncle Ryan, let's go play Ultimate Frisbee again. But I was competitive, even to my own detriment. Pride will do that to you. And in more serious ways than just in a competition of ultimate frisbee. Pride is often persistent. Uh, we see it in this passage. We see pride keep rearing its head in Nebuchadnezzar's life. If you look back in chapter 2, in verse 47, he responds with humility. He says, the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries. And you have been able to reveal this mystery. He gave the honor to God. But then just a few verses later, he's erecting an image to be worshipped. And then we see at the end of chapter 3, verse 28, again, he has some measure of humility. It says, um, after, after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saved, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach. And Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, 
who had trusted in him and set aside the king's commands and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. There it is again, his favorite form of execution. And their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. So we see humility again, but then we see... He's proud again in chapter 4. So proud, in fact, that God has to send another dream to warn him and ultimately humble him in a very embarrassing way. And so we see Nebuchadnezzar's pride is persistent. He keeps coming back. Listen, this is true in our lives. We have to be ever on guard, ever vigilant. We're going to see how to combat that. But this isn't a battle that's one time and then you don't have to worry about it again. It'll keep coming back and back and back if you don't settle your heart the way that Daniel did. One last thing. The problem with pride is that God will not tolerate it. God will not tolerate it. He'll only allow one person to be sovereign, and that is himself. And when his children decide to supplant God, even in their own lives, he will not tolerate it. And that's what brings us to chapter 4. In chapter 4, we see Nebuchadnezzar really given an account himself. Look at verse 4. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my place, and I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me. So again, we see round 2, where God is specifically speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, and here we find out he is warning him about his pride. We'll cut to the end. You can read chapter 4 in more detail. But when we get to Daniel's interpretation, he makes it very clear. Look what he says in verse 19. He says, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. That's Daniel saying, this is not a good dream for you. You're not going to be the head of gold in this dream. He says, The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached the heaven... It was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reached to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down, <coughs> coming down from heaven, and saying, Chop down the tree but leave its stump and roots in the earth and bound with a bound of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Now he transitions from a tree to a person. He says, let him be dew with the wet of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree from the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time, seven seasons. In Babylon, they, they, they considered a year to be two seasons. Summer and winter. And he said, seven seasons will pass. Three and a half years, according to Babylonian time. Seven, year, uh, seven, seven seasons will pass. And you will, till you know the most high rules, the kingdom of man gives it to whom he will. And it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you for the time you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel
to be acceptable to you. So Daniel said, your pride is going to cost you. It's going to cost you three and a half years of your life. Have you ever known someone that lost many years of their life because of pride? Too stubborn to talk to someone to make resolution? Maybe a family member? Pride because you don't want to ask someone for forgiveness, perhaps a spouse, and you lose valuable years of your life. Nebuchadnezzar lost three and a half years of his life because of this pride. Because God won't tolerate it. We see it happen. In verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar was on his roof, and he looks around, he sees all that he has built. Mighty power, his royal residence, the glory and majesty. Remember, he had one set one of the world. He had built around his palace what is known as the Hanging Gardens. He had recreated essentially mountains around his home so his wife would feel at home there in Babylon. And it was known around the world. In fact, the palace was so great, even after Babylon was fallen, the palace remained a cultural icon for the next kingdom. This was how great his house was. And he was looking at it, and he was enjoying it. And verse 31 says, While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men. And the prophecy was fulfilled. You can go back and you can read this in detail. Let me just make this clear. So far, two prophecies in the book of Daniel came true exactly as it was prophesied. And it's been confirmed by historical sources. You can see historical texts where uh, Nebuchadnezzar lost four years of his life because of this. So... We learned a lesson in the contrast of characters. We learned a lesson in the chink in his armor, which was pride. But also, we want to close with this. We can especially learn from the cure to pride. The cure to pride. After the dream, but before the fulfillment of the dream, Daniel had given him some advice. In verse 27, he says, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Listen to this. Here's how you cure your pride. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of prosperity. And Nebuchadnezzar did it for 12 more months. For one year he delayed the execution of this dream because he humbled himself for a year. He humbled himself by show, by practicing righteousness, which would be a demonstration of humility before God. That's us saying, God, whatever you say, that's the right way. I'm not going to determine the right way. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to do what you say. And he showed mercy to those that were oppressed. That's us showing mercy. Uh, that's us showing humility before others. Humility before God. Humility before others. Being obedient. Being merciful. This is how we delay pride in our life. This is how we thwart pride in our own life. This stake is sentenced for one year. The ultimate cure for pride is humility. And if you don't choose that path, he did for one year, but then he gave it up. And then what happened? He was humiliated. That's it. Those are the only two responses to pride. Either you humble yourself or you're humiliated. I've been humiliated before. Have you? I don't want to do that again. I'd rather be humble. I'd rather choose the humble path. Jesus, uh, what Peter said, humble yourselves in the mighty hand of God, and in due time, he will raise you up. And that's exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. 
eventually he was raised up. I'm going to ask our worship team to come forward, and they're going to start playing. And I just want to read to you some of the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar here. And this is interesting. This is the final note in the story of Nebuchadnezzar's life. From these passages, we don't see any other form of Nebuchadnezzar. What it appears to be is Nebuchadnezzar stayed humble for the rest of his life. This is all I can hope for. I just hope that I end well. I pray that you end well. And here was his testimony. In chapter 4 and verse 3, Nebuchadnezzar prays this. He says, how great, and we, and we can say this same prayer. We can sing this same song. This is our testimony as well as his. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Listen to a second prayer of Nebuchadnezzar. After he was humbled and after he was restored, he says this. I bless the Most High. Just as we're going to do here in just a minute. We're going to bless the Most High. And we're going to praise and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar says, at that time my reasoning returned to me for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, my splendor returned to me. My counselors of my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom. Still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, says this in his own words. I praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Do you believe that? Let me ask you this. Do you, if you can believe that God can crush an entire nation, do you think he can crush the sin in your life? If God can take a pagan king and turn him into a worshiper, do you think God can take his own child and cause him or her to walk in the path of righteousness? I do. I believe he can. Nothing towards pride like praising and extolling the greatness of another. And no one deserves praise and extolling like our Jesus. Because no one has needed or found rescue as much as us. Let's stand, let's exercise humility together by extolling the name of God.